Welcome to episode 175 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real, who matters, and how we can make a better world. The Sentientism worldview answers those deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Molly Elwood. Molly is a writer, copywriter, editor, creative strategist, and an animal rights activist. She's founder and CEO of the non-existent farm, Elwood's Organic Dog Meat. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 174 others in our timeless back catalogue. Uh, it'll be timeless until we persuade the rest of the human species to agree with us anyway. Uh, why not let me know via a review or rating? Reviews, ratings and sharing really help more people find out about the sentientism worldview, hopefully nudging the world towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info. We can sign up for email updates or just search for the word sentientism, that's sentient with ism on the end on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these sorts of ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. I'd ask the youth group leaders these questions. I'd be like, well, if you can tell me what happened to the dinosaurs, you can tell me why my parents are going to hell and why animals don't have souls. Once you've solved those for me, I'm ready. Just, I'm ready to be baptized. Bring me into church. And they would just be like, let's isolate her away from the children. <laughs> She's asking too many questions. I, you know, I'd rescue birds and rescue worms and things like that. But I also, I went hunting with my family. I was trained to, I, I only went hunting once, but I couldn't shoot the deer. The sun was rising and she was eating and I saw her jaw moving as she was eating. And I just remember thinking, this is beautiful. What is this, this beautiful moment? I am with this being. And why would I want to end this moment? I think we need to empathize where people are. I was there too. When you're angry at the beginning, you don't have empathy for people. You only have empathy for animals. The future will be changed when we are able to talk to people as humans and see them fully. When people see that, that they can do that, every day with so many different aspects of their lives of making the kind choice becomes not a hassle, but becomes this gift. Hey, Molly, how are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, great. It's brilliant to get the chance to talk to you and take this from occasional sort of Twitter DMs and retweets of your amazing work and actually have a proper conversation. So thank you for uh, being a guest on the Sentientism podcast and YouTube. It's great to have you here. I'm really happy to be here. I've been listening for a while and your guest lineup is, I'm just humbled to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's what, yeah, I've been so lucky to have an amazing range of guests and um, I'm very lucky to have you added to the guest list too. So you know this already because it's wonderful to have you as a listener, but it's a series of conversations about what I think of as the deepest and most important philosophical questions and frankly the ones that most of humanity still gets wrong even though the answers are blindingly obvious and the first question is what's real and I guess in philosophical terms epistemology how should we go about knowing stuff working out what's true and what isn't true and just as importantly other questions of ethics you know what matters what do right and wrong mean and just as importantly who gets the matter and the sentientism worldview I'm trying to popularize and develop answers that question hopefully in a very common sense but radical way in a sentence it says it's evidence reason and compassion for all sentient beings so when we're thinking about how to understand the world we should use evidence and reason and some humility to engage with the reality honestly to try and best understand it knowing that's always going to be a, 
endless struggle. And when it comes to the questions of ethics, the most important thing is that every sentient being, any being that has the capacity to have experiences, to suffer, to flourish, to for things to go well or badly for them, all of them should matter in our moral consideration and should matter seriously too. But I'm lucky to talk in these conversations, as you know, to many people who agree with that sort of worldview, but many people who don't. So it'll be interesting to see how your own sort of philosophical journey fits into that and how that underpins the work you do today. But I should stop rambling on and give you a chance to introduce yourself for people who don't know of you and your work. How would you best cue that up? Uh, well, that was... First off, I agree with you. Podcast is over. We're good. I'm kidding. Um, but uh, no, I think some of my audience would absolutely be so refreshed to have like a two minute podcast instead of like a 90 minute. Sounds one. great. I agree. Um, <laughs> I'm Molly Elwood, really high level. Um, I'm a copywriter and a writer and um, more recently an animal rights activist. In my past life, I mean, which is just very recent, um, professionally, I've worked in advertising for 15 years. The reason I'm on your podcast is I started the activism page, Elwood's Organic Dog Meat, um, which is a, a vegan journey where people go visit this website and it looks like I'm farming dogs, but I'm not. And it just brings them on this this journey through their own cognitive dissonance and hopefully brings them to the realization that they love animals and they actually don't want to eat them. So it's gone viral on Facebook and it uh, reaches lots of people and um, the website is just going wild. So that's why I'm here. Yeah. I mean, it's reaching so many people and with, a, I think, a, a really distinctive message that makes people very angry but I think is fundamentally respecting them and their wish to be ethical. And it'll be good it to come is. back to that later on. But that's one of the reasons I like it, right? You're not just saying, you know, let's make this easy for you. You're actually giving people the space to examine their own ethics. And, um, you know, there's something naive in my mind that really wants to hold on to that potential for humanity, right? It is. It's really exciting. Uh, and yeah, we can talk about it later. But I think it's um, treating people. I think my philosophy is I think everyone's vegan already. And I don't think they're given the space to to act on that. And they're not given given the moment to give it the thought. And this gives them the chance to make all the vegan arguments that are already in their heart. And they say them and then they're like, what did I just say? That sounds vegan. Uh-oh. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant. I think we can leave it there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We're not going to leave it there. We're gonna, I'm going to take you through all of this. <laughs> We're done. But that queued it up perfectly. Um, yeah. So let's start with the first of these big philosophical questions is question of what's real and for many of my guests I mean that's a broad question but for many of my guests often it starts out with a story about how they grew up and was that in a family and a society that was quite scientifically minded maybe atheistic maybe naturalistic in the way it thought about the world and reality or maybe more spiritual or religious in some sense and how is that side of their thinking about the nature of reality how should we go about understanding it has changed over time if it has and how do you think about that big question now so you can tell the story however you like um well i didn't go to church growing up um i went with my grandparents um on my dad's side to their lutheran church every so often but i really didn't know what was happening um so my thoughts about church even to this day are pretty childish like um i remember thinking that the pastor was jesus because he had long hair and looked like the guy on the stained glass window um, makes sense. Makes sense. And my um, my dad just was like, "There's just too much work to be done to waste a Sunday doing this." And um, and then on my, on my mom's side, they um, 
some of, of her siblings were touched inappropriately by a pastor or somebody in their in their church and so it became this that is that was a thing that i heard a lot when i especially when i was older and i wanted to go to youth group it was this you know thought that everyone involved with the church is probably a pedophile and don't get involved with any of them why would they want to hang out with children um which is just this weird you know like you hear about so many people being brought up with religion and i was kind of brought up to not being religion not have i mean and it was never um it was never an atheistic view it was never we never even talked about it it was just this isn't our family this isn't what we do yeah um everything in our family was very matter of fact it wasn't there wasn't even a science thing there was no spirituality um my parents were both um worked really long hours and were also in the military so they traveled a lot and we were just trying to you know survive sounds wrong but it was you know we were just going through the day so we didn't we never even dwelled on any of these questions um but i did um when i was 12 i moved to a very rural you know like population 900 people <laughs> town that um everybody went to church and everybody was religious and so i felt pretty left out because everyone was going everyone was going to church and all my friends were involved with church and going to youth group and um summer like religious summer camps and stuff so i actually tried just how and, you had a social life i guess yeah that's yeah. what it was yeah. and um i went to youth group in high school in retrospect it was the boys and singing that's what i wanted to go for but i really wanted to fit in and so in order to fit in like i got a bible and i read it and i thought like i would live <laughs> i'm so studious I'd like write down the questions that I had about like, well, this is what's standing between me and baptism. And it would be like, I had, I, and I would ask, I'd ask the youth group leaders, these questions. I'd be like, well, if you can tell me what happened to the dinosaurs and tell me why my parents are going to hell and why animals don't have souls. Once you've solved those for me, I'm ready. Just, I'm ready to be baptized. Bring me into the church. And they would just be like, let's isolate her away from the children. <laughs> She's asking too many questions. And I, I didn't get it. I didn't get why that was so problematic to. I, I, They're pretty basic questions, right? Surely they must have the answers right. somewhere. I assume they had them and they were like, God buried the dinosaurs for us to find. I was like, I mean, Okay, but what about the souls? I think that that seems and I just remember, there's probably one summer that I thought about this all the time being like, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. And so I, Christianity had me in their palm, and they rejected me because I could ask questions. So um, <clears throat> that was it. Um, and did you did you manage to find a way through that you could recognize you didn't believe in this stuff? But but still participate enough to get that sort of social life and that aspect? Or was that a trade you had to make where you were just like, you know, I can't be in these groups or do these things anymore? I think so. Yeah, I think that's what happened is I was able to go through high school doing, I it was probably two years I was in youth group in high school and it was just going through the motions, just being like, okay, I'm sure, I'm sure this is going to click and maybe I'm, I'm just too naive right now or I'm, you know, too stubborn or whatever. But I'll find someone with the answers. And I remember going to college and youth group became um, a lot more religious and a lot less like camp songs. And uh, I realized I couldn't be, I couldn't, this was not a group for me and I couldn't, I, I couldn't use this as my vehicle to belong. So spirituality and religion was never, has never, and, and even today is not, is not part of my life and didn't, it hadn't really played a role. 
yeah just never not felt that pull and it's interesting because it sounds like in your early days your family just one there was obviously the negative aspect of the experiences that people had heard of there but it was almost just a sense of look this just isn't relevant to us it wasn't necessarily rejecting it or saying it's wrong or it was just like what is that thing with sort of got our life to deal with and let's move on and then exactly yeah and it was later on that you were more intellectually engaged with hold on what are these people actually saying and what are the implications of that and that didn't resonate either yeah Uh yeah yeah Yeah. definitely and it's interesting that there's been no as you said there's no sense of a pull towards the spiritual because some of my guests have had that similar sort of experience about sort of established religion they've either bumped up against some of the ethics they see whether it's sexism racism anti-semitism casteism homophobia whatever it is right or you know child abuse and the following cover-up so there's been an ethical thing that's pulled them away or as with you it's just like these answers don't make sense to me right sounds like human made up bullshit but then they still (laughs) feel some pull towards the spiritual or the transcendent or the maybe there's something else out there that these religions are grasping for but humans have messed it up but you've never you haven't felt any of I think instead of that, where where I ended up is, and I think I think it started in um, it started probably sometime in college. I got a book, and it was you know the the most basic religious book. It was if the Buddha got stuck, and it was just self help through the lens of Buddhism, and that actually ended up me getting me into psychology and into I find personal growth to be kind of my spirituality. I think that my upbringing, we had a lot of troubles growing up and um, I I was bullied and I so I was a bully. I have a lot of self-work I have to do. And in order to do that, like that has always been kind of my pull is this feeling that as we explore ourselves and find more peace within ourselves, then, then we can be more at peace in the world. And so I, I guess it's kind of like, I think we all deal with so much suffering. And I think that if we understand ourselves, we can heal a lot more in the world than we would ever do through spirituality. I think everybody has carries so much trauma and so much un, unstudied, you know, chips in our shoulders and whatever it is. And I think that if we spend our time just trying to be like, what is there a God and who made this as opposed to going, why do I feel this way? And how can I be a better person? So I kind of trailed off there, but that's, I just think that we can make the world a lot better through personal growth than praying. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you completely. And it's interesting because there's aspects of what people describe as spirituality that I think there's a lot of value in. And one of them is, as you've laid out there, that sense of understanding yourself and trying to improve yourself and trying to think about our role in the world. There's also this sort of sense of everything being interconnected in some way and, and spirituality can lead people to have that broad sense of, you know, ultimately we're, we are all one and that can help them care about others. Um, but I think you can do those, take the positive aspects of those things, the self-growth and the, we are all connected in a completely naturalistic scientific sense, right? Physics says we are all connected and right you know we are beings with a capacity in the world that have psychological states you know we can do all of that without any we can have you know the benefits of that spirituality if you like without the spirit and without the supernatural and it feels to me that it's when we add in those genuinely supernatural elements that things can go 
horribly wrong. And you can see that happen within established religions, but you can also see that in a lot of new age, spirituality, conspirituality, a lot of the wellness space where it's not a religion thing anymore, but there's some sense of, you know, a mystical connection or a capacity to manifest your future or the universe is speaking to me and justifies me doing certain things that can go off the rails just as badly as Christianity or Islam or some of the established religions can as well. So I like, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? I think there's a lot of emotion and a sense of meaning and a sense of personal growth and a sense of connectedness that we should all share, but you don't need any spirituality to work on that stuff or to understand that stuff. Right. And I also think that a lot of the, um, when I talk about trauma and I talk about anxiety and fear and all, all the things that we all carry with us. And I think that these are also, these are blockers from that spirituality that, you know, that it's really hard to be sit and be at peace when you are carrying jealousy and, and fear or any of these, any of these hard emotions with you all the time. And in order to self-reflect and, and find out the sources of these problems and how to let go and forgive then you can, you know, sit in the woods and feel connected to it. You're not chasing these human problems that are that plague all of us. And I think that, I mean, that's where the spirituality thing ties in. It's it's part of that. It's part of that journey. But I don't know. I don't really have the words to describe what that is. Yeah, and one of my previous guests, uh, Janina Terzi, who runs a beautiful sanctuary, just also described the risk of what she calls spiritual bypassing and and you you talked there about you know addressing how we are and who we are and coming to terms with that and then finding a path and the spiritual bypassing idea i think is more like using the spirituality as a way of bypassing that stuff right we don't need to do the hard work we don't need to deal with the reality of who we are we don't need to deal with the trauma or the challenge we can almost use this sort of pseudo magical spirituality to bypass those problems and bypass ethics and bypass who we want to be in the world and um yeah that's a that's a real risk in that space i think i can imagine like i remember being young and being like trying praying out and being like well what 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 am i going to pray for what am i going to ask for and you ask for these things but again if you do more self-reflection you'll be like well why am i asking for this why do i need this why do i want this is this actually what i really want is this going to make me happy or is this actually tied to something else? And if you if you end up never questioning, I think that you can really get stuck. Um, yeah. So, yeah. No, I agree. Thank you. So this what's real question obviously is much broader than this question of the supernatural and the natural and religion and spirituality. It also comes to, you know, how should we form beliefs and credences about stuff in general? And one of the reasons why I've been pushing sentientism as a combination of epistemology and ethics is that I don't think either are enough by themselves. So some people, sometimes people will say to me, well, why does sentientism have to insist on evidence and reason? You know, if we have compassion for all sentient beings, is, isn't that enough? And I, part of the reason is I think as much of our human cause problems are to do with basically factual errors and misunderstandings, misinformation, disinformation, bullshit, gaslighting, p- fabrications, dogma, you know, as much of it comes from that as does from actual ethical failings so one weird example right is that you might look back at the example of Descartes who was widely acknowledged to conduct live vivisections on dogs for example 
But in a sense, he had a sentiocentric compassion. Right? He cared about all sentient beings. He just made a factual error, which was that he thought only humans could be sentient. He genuinely didn't seem to think those dogs were suffering. So I guess that's just a pretty awful example of how, you know, c compassion can go off the rails if you understand reality wrongly. But I'm interested in your thoughts more generally about epistemology, because there's a whole whole realm of human psychology about how we come to believe and and so on. But in the field of fields of the type of activism you do, there are many different examples of where we can go off the rails, I think, on both sides, right? Because one of the things as, you know, an animal activist and as a vegan is that we might have a wishful thinking because, you know, our objective is clear, right? We want to end exploitation and suffering and death for sentient beings. Um, so our end goal is clear. And there's a pull that we, we will want to believe things that will support that goal. Um, and you can see it in certain parts of the vegan movement where people may be attempted to overclaim about certain aspects of, you know, the health benefits of a vegan diet or certain aspects of the climate impacts or whatever it might be. There's a risk there because it undermines the credibility of the movement if you overstate. But at the same time, we don't need to overstate because the impacts on all those things are catastrophic already. So why feel the need? But on the flip side, for the people who are resisting the types of changes we're bringing, they very heavily rely on fabrications and dogma and epistemological errors in their campaign as much as they arguably even more than they do compassion because most of the people who are pushing back on the changes you and i are trying to drive don't say you shouldn't care about animals what they actually say is you know the animals can't suffer they're cared for we treat them in a humane way and so these are these are factual statements they're not saying you shouldn't care they're saying farming and what we do in labs is actually factually, you know, a different thing from the way you understand it. So again, I should avoid the temptation to go off on a sort of rant, but I, I'm interested in your thoughts about, you know, epistemology and facts and evidence more generally as we work on these types of campaigns. Do, what sort of role do, do you think yeah. they play? Well, one of the things I did with Elwood Dogmeat was, I remember leading up to Elwood Dogmeat, before that, I did a lot of online activism and I had endless facts. I had all of the, all of the facts lined up. I, I, oh, here's the impact on water. Here's the impact on land. Here's the health. Here's the, you know, all of the things. And I would share them. And then you would get in these back and forth arguments where somebody then shares their science and there's somebody shares their thing back. And you're like, and I found also myself in Googling these things, finding things that would, you know, disprove my you know, and I'm like, well, now I have to read this because what if I'm wrong? And so when I built Elwood's that I thought, what is the in one inarguable fact, which is animals suffer and that you don't want animals, you, you wouldn't, you as a human would not want this to happen to a dog. And I think if, if I don't, I don't have to tell you that uh, the science shows that you will live a longer life, not longer life, that you will live a, you can live a healthy life. I don't need to tell you about the water. I don't need to tell you about climate change or the workers or anything. If you can just agree on this one thing, everything else goes out because this is, this is the one thing I think all humans can agree on that if I have a dog in front of me right now, I would not kill it for no reason. And so I think that we do get bogged down in the science a lot we end up shooting ourselves in the foot because we think that well this is this is what's going to drive the change but it neglects the feeling of the the, the reality that the other person 
wants to be right and will will keep arguing this, but they won't argue about pain. They won't argue. So um I found I found a lot of strength in that and being like, I'm 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 going to abandon the science, even if I believe in it. This is what the, I'm I'm not going to use this in my argument. And I found it's been very helpful. Yeah. So you focused in on both the most ethically important aspect, but also the thing that is most difficult to challenge scientifically, right? I mean, yep. who yep. and believe me, there are still people out there like this, and you've encountered them, I'm sure. There are still people out there who think that non-humans can't suffer in the same way we can. But but it's a pretty solid starting point, right? And it's one of my other guests talked about the fact that as you said at the beginning, people already know this, right? You're starting from their values. You're not having to convince them the puppy at my feet, Luna here, can experience joy and suffering and pain and pleasure, right? They already know that. And you don't they shouldn't even need to convince them, right? Yeah. It's 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 really fun to like seeing the thing like uh I say things like, you know, you can step on a dog's foot and they don't even feel it which is something that happens often Pete and dog lovers are go, wait, no, I've seen them. I'm like, that's just a reaction. That's just, that's just a reaction to stimulus. That's just a survival thing. They don't, they're not actually feeling it. And then they argue it for me. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, exactly. Thank you. No, that's good. That's good. Um, So let's come on to the second of these big philosophical questions, the question of what matters and we might blur into who matters. We've already started to do that. But for people like you who didn't grow up with the sort of religious toolkit so much, although you were exposed to that later on, it's quite interesting to ask, okay, well, if you if you don't have a God looking over your shoulder, you don't have a list of rules in the Quran or the Bible, you don't have the threat of heaven and hell, you know, you're not being told what to do and what not to do by a priest, you know, what do good and bad, right and wrong actually mean to you? And you mentioned already that there were some you know, difficult aspects to your childhood and growing up you were working through too so it'd be interesting to understand again that journey of how you thought about good and bad right and wrong and how you think of them now what do those things mean yeah um well I think veganism really became my moral compass in the last you know seven years just just it it just opened up my eyes to the concept of doing less harm and being kind and like this is the, the low hanging fruit that you, that you could do every day um and are, and are those things that were already core to your ethics before the no, vegan journey so no. how did you, even before the vegan thing happened how, how did you think of the, these types of things did you have a conception of good and bad and right and wrong that then got broken as you start to think <laughs> about animals or yeah i think so and i think it is a um and I, a lot of it is maturity, you know, it's growing up and, and realizing you're not, you're not the center of the universe, but it was, um, oh, it right. was yeah. uh, so hard. What a realization you can't just, but no, um, in that thing of, um, like I said, that I was bullied and I was a bully. So I, 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 I behaved in a way that what can I get away with? What can I do? What, how can I get ahead? And I don't know exactly you know, it was a desire to get along with people that, you know, made me do a lot more self-reflection and, you know, this, this, the psychiatrist, looking into psych, seeing a psychiatrist and helping with that helped. But um, I know that I can, I can pinpoint it with, with animals and that, like, I think that is a, because veganism now is my kind of my moral compass that I think that going back through like my relationship with animals is a, um, 
is a good a good descriptor. It'd be um so I was I was not sentimental about animals when I grew up. Um, I cared about them. I, I you know I'd rescue birds and rescue worms and things like that. But I also went fishing and I went hunting with my family. I was trained to. I, I only went hunting once, but I couldn't shoot the deer. I I had it in my scope and I couldn't do it. Um, I'd fish, but I couldn't kill the fish. I. Um, and what was happening in your what was happening in your mind at that moment when your finger was on the trigger? Oh. I don't know. I don't know if you've seen my um my pinned tweet on Twitter, which is um, have you ever stopped to just watch animals? They're so much more interesting when they're alive. And so I just remember the scope brought me right into her face. You know, it brought me right next to her, and I could. It was the sun was rising, and she was eating, and I saw her jaw moving as she was eating, and I just remember thinking, she has no idea I'm here this is beautiful. What is this, this beautiful moment? I mean, you know, I'm 12. So I'm thinking my first, my first, I am with this being. And why would I want to end this moment? You know, why, why do I want to be closer to this animal when they're dead, when I could sit and watch? It's like a window into their perspective. It was. And, um, and I think that, I mean, that is such a, um, was such a big moment in my life. I was there with my dad and I was going to make him proud. We were out with all, I was a tomboy. So I was out with all these guys and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to get the first deer and it's going to be great. And um, my dad was like, you got to do it. Here's your time. And I was just like, oh, I missed, you know, (laughs) make some noise. So she runs away and miss it. And, um, and I knew at that point I was, I was never going to go hunting again. And I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to kill an animal like that. And it's it's brave at twelve to do that in the context with the pressure, with the expectation, with the wanting to make oh your dad God. proud. And I I'd gone through like a whole year of hunters training. Like the amount of, they you know they my family's so busy and they would take me to this class you know every week to learn how to do this and and I like squandered it all. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um. And and that was something that then became you know my my family kept hunting and i just remember thinking like it it made me sad that they would go out and i my i had an uncle who who mounted all of his kills on the wall he had this this death room and i just remember being in there being like these animals were all alive and how wild is it that why why would you want to look at them like this it's you know and and so much effort put into making them look lifelike in death it's like they could actually still be alive oh my god um humans are so weird oh my god i mean if you this is this is where i think this just kind of this animal thing progresses is um my family was pretty sadistic about animals the way they treated animals was because they are other they don't we don't have to give them any consideration we had a um a Pyrenees dog. He lived outside. He never came inside. He was always just at the window. It was just this he just and he was dirty and smelly, so you didn't want to touch him. And he just stayed chained to the porch. My brother would kill squirrels and dissect them and leave them out on rocks for us to find. He would have shoot buckets of birds and make, you know, like it, it's just a constant stream of animal. I I, I don't know if I, I hesitate to say animal abuse, but from a vegan perspective, that's what you call it. But from just a, this is just what you do in the country. 
yeah just unthinking normality yes and i would get very upset um my mother would shoot squirrels in the in the yard i'm i'm from again the country um because they would eat her garden and i remember just having these arguments with my family being like what is the point what are we and i'm not even vegan but i'm just like why would you you live in the woods where these animals live. You're never going. You're never going to shoot all of them. You'll never get to the end of them. Where does the suffering stop? I think all this stuff really—it just built up over time. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't handle thinking about all this unnecessary death. And it wasn't until I um, I taught English abroad in China, and I was in a very small rural place, where um, that was my first time seeing the animals I ate they'd be alive beforehand you know they would the the goats on the street tied up in front of the restaurant or a the cages full of the chickens or the the aquarium full of the fish i was there with my college boyfriend and he really enjoyed picking the animals that he was going to eat he was like he just thought it was very comical to be like that one that's the one and i stopped going out to eat with him i was like these are the nights i'm going to stay in and i'm going to cook for myself i don't want to be a part of this but what's funny is it it still took me years after that to go vegetarian. Like it was still like it just this this haunting thing that just depressed me and I didn't understand why. And I had uh, two mirror incidences that I think that dro drove me to vegetarianism, which was in China, I ate a basket full of rabbit legs. Like it was just they started the way chicken would be. And it was such a unique thing that shocked me out of my perspective of being like a rabbit rabbit has two legs we just ate 12 so that is six rabbits and that number sat with me I was like oh I'm feeling uncomfortable about this and then a few years later it's the same thing but it was chicken wings and it was like we were at a friend's birthday party and we thought it would be funny to put all of our chicken wings on the same same plate and put it in front of the birthday boy like he'd eaten them. And as I sat there, I, I flashed back to the rabbits and I was like, oh, my God, how many chickens? And I suddenly like, you know, like a line back in time, the chickens in the cage, the, all the animals that I've been afraid of, it was like, oh, my God, I see them. I finally see them and I can't I can't unsee them. I can't unsee that these are bones, that this was a body and I don't have to do this anymore. And um, it was such this, such a relief to let go of all this, the cognitive dissonance of seeing animals suffering my whole life and feeling bad and never doing anything about it. So, um, yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of us live that way. I think a lot of us live with this pain and we don't ever do anything. We don't ever have the opportunity to think about it or we don't take the opportunity. So... Yeah. yeah thank you it's difficult isn't it it's hard yeah you feel sometimes you feel like you're an alien on a weird planet where oh, the rest of yeah. humanity just doesn't get it so and what was and, and how did your journey continue from there through to going vegan which i think was about six seven years ago and and i'm interested in what sort of response you've got from family friends society as you've made that transition because it's 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 interesting. Sometimes with my guests who've left religion, there's a parallel between the story about leaving a religious worldview and becoming atheistic, for example, and leaving you know a default animal consumption worldview and becoming an ethical vegan. And quite often there's some really fascinating parallels there about the psychological difficulty, the challenges, the the sort of phase transitions in your mind, the 
dissonance and then the social pressure and the challenges of how people respond but i'm interested in what what the animal side of your journey was like in that respect in the later stages because you talked about earlier on you pushing back already well it's so interesting that um i never really thought about that but that is it is um it is like leaving a religion you know if you come from a family that hunts and fishes and has we had a meat freezer you know like we to leave that and to tell people they're wrong and to say that i'm not going to live that way anymore is it's an affront to their way of life it is you know it's it's turning your back on on your upbringing um yeah the culture their identity the sort of very essence of who they are exactly and that is your that's your holidays those are your yeah this this is what we get together and we do yeah i i was vegetarian for a long time a long time two years and i didn't even i just was like well i'm doing i'm a good person now and i'll have to think about it um and i watched it was a humane league video on twitter that had um they were sorting male chicks into a garbage can and I saw this video and I went, what am I looking at? And then I had to, I went down that rabbit hole of, well, this must be somewhere else. And then finding out, no, it's in the U.S. And I was like, wait a minute, what, what, why is this what happens to all male chicks? And then I went, wait a minute, why do vegans not eat dairy? And then it was, it was one night of up until four in the morning, reading everything and going, oh my God, I had no clue. And um, I remember texting my husband and being like, because he does all the cooking. And I was like, um, I have to go vegan. Can we go vegan? And I assumed that he would say, and he was vegetarian with me at the time. And um, I assumed he'd say no. And he's like, sure, let's try it. I mean, we'll try it out. So we'll try it for like a month. And I fully expected it not to stick. And it did. And then suddenly, I guess I was like, oh, I guess I'm vegan now. But but the journey was really a lot harder. And it was, um, I was so embarrassed. I would be, I was so embarrassed to have been making these choices. And so my first, my first step, was, it was, it was, oh my God, it's so cringeworthy. At first I was a vegetarian of convenience, which was my term for it would be like, I didn't eat meat at home, but if somebody offered me meat, I'd eat it. And I'd be like, I'm doing baby steps. I'm doing better for the planet. Everything, you know, it's better that it's better that I'm doing this than, you know, not making any change. And the same with the, like, the same with veganism was, it was like, it was, I went vegan, but I didn't want to tell anybody. So we'd go places and I just, I would eat the vegan food that was available, but not say anything because I didn't want to use that word. I, I mean, my friends across the street would have these giant meat parties and I would go there and just eat the vegetables and hope that no one, like maybe it even put meat on my plate and throw it away so they didn't see it. But the, um, I read Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer and it just... It fueled me with all those facts that I felt like, well, now, now I can tell people about it and I can tell people why I'm not doing this. This isn't just some emotional feeling that I have. I'm not just, you know, I'm not just some spineless, you know, bleeding heart. I actually can tell you about the planet and things like that. But it's so funny for me to come back and say, no, I think that that is it. I think the heart of it is that feeling. It, this is, if if you held a bird in your hand, you're, you wouldn't crush it. So, I mean, it doesn't matter its impact on the planet. You wouldn't crush it. So, yeah, it's pretty simple. Yeah, thank you. And that, and and it's the dynamic there about not wanting to use the word is really interesting because people who've got comfortable describing themselves as vegan, it's um, you know, of course, I think of it as a, an ethical stance, a philosophy with practical implications, but but it can also take on a, an identity 
too. And, and in a way that makes sense, right? Because if this philosophy is deeply important to you, it is part of my identity and it feels like that. Um, and that that can have some difficulties for people who are vegan because I think they can take that sort of identity stance in ways that might not actually be consistent with the ethics underlying them. But it's also a, a major defense mechanism for people coming and joining us in this ethical stance as well. And my personal view is I think we just, I just want to normalize it. I want it to to bring those boundaries down so that people do feel much more comfortable identifying with it. But there are other schools of thought about, look, let, don't use the V word, let other people people find their own way into it that doesn't feel like it's such a jump. Um, and again, we can come back to that when we talk about different modes of activism. But the identity thing strikes me as a really important defense for people not engaging, because I find this even with, you know, friends and family, is that I think the decision mode, when someone has, you know, an impossible burger here and a flesh burger next to it, the decision mode isn't which has the lower ethical impact. It isn't which has the lower carbon footprint. It's not even which is the tastier. It's not even which would I enjoy more. It's that one is the, that one is the vegan one. That one is the not vegan one. I am not a vegan, therefore I eat this one. And it's like, and so again, the identity means that they completely bypass any other decision parameter whatsoever. And you'll you, you just see this in the classic trope of people saying, I was behind someone in a restaurant in an airport months and months ago. And the woman looked at this salad that looked delicious in a plastic bowl under the counter. And there wasn't much left because it was late at night. And the woman said, oh, you know, what, what's in the salad? And the person behind the counter explained what was in the salad. And the woman was like, oh, that sounds delicious. You know, I'm going to have that. And the guy said, yeah, and it's completely vegan. And the woman turned around and walked away and ordered nothing. Right? Mm -hmm. Because that's vegan and she's not a vegan. So mm -hmm. the brain just, you know, so disconnect. Just... it's absolutely bizarre. So this, again, humans are weird, right? I think that could yes. be one of the themes of our conversation, but there's something about that identity that can be very powerful and, and binding and it can lead us to feel solidarity. And it can also be used by people as a defense, you know, and we have so many to not engage with these very simple, straightforward ethical questions. And you need a good defense because the ethical questions are so simple and direct and so obvious that you need a, you know, you need an array of psychological defenses. So, yeah. Well, I think about, especially in the U.S., it's the, the machismo associated with eating meat and and in contrast the perspective of what vegan means and what vegetarian means and i was i i grew up i had a, a vegetarian friend and my my dad would make fun of her all the time i mean it'd just be oh she's pale she's weak she's thin obviously this is why she's in theater and not playing a sport you know like it's just yeah. and i would hear you know i would hear these things and i absorb these things and i don't even think about them this is just that's just what vegetarians and vegans are I, I don't think people get to examine that. And I think that that was one of the things that happened for me is was when I went vegan, I tried not to tell anybody about it, but I was working at a company that would often have get togethers where we were having meals and things like that. And I was outed as the vegan. I'm sure your vegans in your audience can relate to this as being outed as the vegan where they were like, we all, who has who has the vegan pizza and they're like the vegans right here and then suddenly you're the spokesperson for veganism and you're talking suddenly everybody's telling you how 
they only eat a little meat, but I only hunt my meat. And I'm like, you, you're vegan except for the animals you hunt. That's amazing. Um, yeah. But um, it, it ends up being like, I leading up to that, I was always just trying to fit in and always felt weird. I've always felt weird. I've always felt like I... I'm struggling to be part of an in crowd that I'll never be in. I don't know if it's due to the religion, religion part is the beginning of it. of being like, I'm just trying to get, get along. And so this ended up being this huge life-changing thing for me to finally have this identity that I didn't feel like I chose. It's like, again, like I said, I think we're all vegan. I'm like, I didn't choose this. This is who we all are, but now I have this label that now I have to represent it. And so I was thinking like, if I'm, if I'm vegan, me, the last person on earth who should ever be vegan. Well, maybe I should talk about it to other people who are like me and especially do it when I'm newly vegan because nobody's going to listen to me when I'm vegan for seven years. They'd be like, she's a weirdo who's been vegan for seven years. I like, I can tell them just last month, this is what I learned. Isn't that wild? Don't you feel like I still have, I still, I still have the stink of meat on me. I'm still, I'm you still. Yeah. But, um, it's uh it's hard it's hard because we don't want to let go we don't yeah it's, it's um it's so powerful and that's probably a good link to the final question about how can we make a better future because i guess that was also the trigger for you not just saying you know this is something i'm gonna do because it's about my own ethical stance you felt that drive to you know try and bring the rest of the world to agree with you and extend that compassion too so in this question again it's like is crazily broad, right? It's how can we make a better future? And that can be, you know, grand utopian visions of the future, or it can be anything in particular, but it, it's up to you how you want to address it. But it might be interesting to sort of talk us through that story about how you started trying to make the world better in this particular respect and where it's brought you to now with Elwoods and, and how, how you feel that's working. What levers is that pulling? Well, I think, um, it it did start with me being like, I, I, I am a writer. And so I was thinking, I was like, finally, I can use my gift for something that I think matters. Um, and so trying to convince people and trying to educate people, show them what I knew was at first what I thought was going to work. You know, you first go vegan, you're like, I'm going to show you the same video and you're going to change and we're all going to be vegan. I'm going to turn my whole, my whole office vegan by the end of the month. And if um, enough people read your blog, job done oh my god yeah exactly yeah they're all gonna and it was so weird how people would read it and go good job molly i like this but i'm not changing and you're like what um but i think that that and again to go back to kind of the theory of elwood's which is the idea that if you speak to everyone as though they're already vegan and you reach people where they already are and you're more empathetic with them um i think we need to empathize with where people are and again you go back to that psychology aspect of what is all this stuff that people are carrying with them what is blocking them what is you know their fears their identities their anxieties and then just their day-to-day -day lives you know you think about my dad saying i don't have time for religion i'm i have too much work to do everybody has too much work to do i don't have time to learn about what nutritional yeast is or how to make my own tempeh like i am just getting by and I think that one of the things that I see a lot in the vegan community is, and I think it's, you know, I was there too. When you're angry at the beginning, you don't have, you don't have empathy for people. You only have empathy for animals. And I think that we're, the future will be changed when we are able to talk to people 
as humans and see them fully and then talk to them, talk through their, these blocks that they have and, you know, put their hand on an animal and feel that its body's warm and go, do you agree? Do you agree that this animal, you don't want to harm this animal? And I, I know that's, it's the problem with this is it's not grand. It's not, it's not something that we all can, you know, we can't wave a wand and I'm not going to change millions of people. But I think with the millions of vegans are out there, if they take a, they take a, a vegan approach to activism of be kind, do the least amount of harm. Even if you you can't do everything, do something, do that something in the gentlest way, have help people reach their own conclusions. But I do know, I mean, I feel naive saying this too, because I've only been doing this for, Elwood's has only been around for two years and I'm not out on the streets. I'm not, I'm not doing cube of truth. I'm not talking to people. So, I mean, I'm very much aware that this is just one way, but it's my way and that's what I can speak to. So Yeah. Thank you. And it's, I think that's one of the toughest things about this idea of having universal compassion, because people will say, look, compassion for sentient beings, you know, tick. But as you said, it's, it gets tricky because many people will extend that compassion to non-human animals, but their understandable anger at what humanity as a whole has done and continues to do can lead them into just writing off humanity and humans completely and withdrawing our compassion from 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 others and and i understand that but one as you're saying i don't think it's a productive way to engage with people if you exclude them from moral consideration you've just lost any chance of right. bringing them where you want to go and also you're not showing a good example of what universal compassion really means and it genuinely is supposed to be universal you know and some of the most difficult conversations i have you know with myself and with others is yes that that means having compassion with people you disagree with, even the angry trolls on Twitter, and even those who are doing needless harm to others, you still have to have compassion. And that that doesn't mean weakness or appeasement, or you have to let them carry on doing what they're doing, right? You might find ways of constraining them or engaging with them in various quite robust ways, but you you still do that with compassion for them. Um, And and one of the things, that's one of the things I, as I, said earlier on that I like most about Hellwoods is that there's all sorts of different schools of thought and advocacy and how to change people's minds. And one very broad one is you, we need to make it easy for people to do the right thing, right? So, you know, we need alternative products. They need to be available, cheap, tasty, nutritious, uh, environmentally sound, but basically they just need to beat the animal source products on their own game and then we'll drive that forward. And I see a lot of power and value in that. But one of the reasons that I think some people, including me, are nervous about relying too much on that is that there's a risk there of a sort of ethical bypassing, that if you make a change so easy for people, they don't realise they've made a change. They don't know why they've done it. They don't know why they've done it, and their ethics haven't actually improved. Now, there's a possibility that as you make it easy for them to change, they're no longer complicit in this horror, and it frees them to put their latent, you know, vegan, compassionate ethics into place. But we've got to make sure that ethical journey happens too. We can't just do the bypassing. And and part of the reason I really like Elwood's is because you're showing a belief ethics can still matter to humans, right? And that and that the average everyday person doesn't want to be a good person, probably is deep down a good person, and is willing to 
engage with that and maybe even make some changes as a result. And I just love the, you know, the almost the faith that it, it shows in humans and the respect it shows. Because to my mind, if I'm on the other side of this debate and someone is dancing around the topic, they won't be clear, you know, they're trying to make it easy for me, they're trying to soften the message too much. There's a point at which that can actually become a bit patronizing and disrespectful. Whereas if someone is willing to, you know, honestly and directly engage in a compassionate way on the facts of the matter and the and the ethics, well, I want to be treated like that. Even if I disagree, I, I still want to be respected in that way. And I think, you know, I think that's one of the things that Elwoods does does well, is it sort of plugs into people's existing ethics and the existing values and then takes them on a journey that gives them the chance to explore the implications. Yeah. I have um I have an autoresponder that says I mean when people message me on Facebook I can choose how I want to respond. And one of them when when somebody gets really mad, you know, and they're they're standing up for the dogs, I get to say I, was, I say I'm very happy to meet you. You're a very compassionate advocate for animals. And you know they're going to be like, "Yes, I am. I am a compassionate advocate for animals." And then they find out what that actually means and they're like, "Oh, no, but I guess maybe like, you know, congratulating them on on their anger is I, I I love telling them I'm so glad you're here I'm so glad to have your passion you're going to stand up for other animals I know you will right um you know one thing that I, I wanted to mention earlier was just one of the things that veganism brought me was this joy um and you'd you'd asked before about um what matters and who matters. And I know that I've listened to your podcast before where you were talking and I think it was Alexander Paul described sweeping up ants and she was going, you know, I know that I have this hierarchy of, of animals where, you know, I, I, I want to sweep them up, but I'm not really caring about them, you know, what happens to them. And I know that a lot of people want to get stuck on the hypocrisy of humans and what you can do and being like, well, you can't do everything. So you might as well do nothing. But one of the things that I, I found a lot of joy in, in my life has, and it's so silly, but I think that like, I, this is something I always want to tell people about is I find great joy in letting bugs outside. And I like, I like, even though you can't help every animal, the fact that I've now added this little level of joy to my life where I'm like, excuse me, I'll be right back. And I get to go have this little interaction with nature of being, you know, it mattered to this one and I get to go put them outside and it, you know, who knows what their experience of the world is. Who, who cares what their experience of the world is. I put them back on a leaf and they're back where they belong. And this is, this was a nice thing that I got to do that was for them and for me. And I think that when people see that, that they can do that, every day with so many different aspects of their lives of making the kind choice becomes not a hassle, but becomes this gift. And I think every moment in your life can be that way. And I think that we can solve so much of this sadness and anger by just taking these moments. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an opportunity. It's freeing and, and it's, it's a privilege just, just have the, the power to be able to make those small contributions right this isn't about sacrifice or giving things up or no and it's a childish joy too like to i mean you don't get to interact with bugs as an adult and you're like in your office job unless you do see a moth and you're like you know what i could go take him down the elevator and bring him out the front and then i got to go outside and it was fun and <laughs> yeah that's a win-win it's a direct win-win uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So the the other aspect of Elwood that is interesting is that, and that well, there are a bunch, but one of the themes of advocacy that I talked about before with this idea of, look, let's make the change easy for people is often also associated with a sort of prioritization that focuses on the, the dark heart of the problem and the scale of the problem, particularly around factory farming, for example. And um, I think, again, it's a sensible place to prioritize. You look at the scale, you look at the sheer level of horror, you look at the suffering that's going on, makes sense. But again, there can be a drift there that you, you know you hinted that you went through this journey yourself right on the one hand there is no perfection in veganism right it's currently impossible to live without causing some harm suffering or death to somebody but if you go too far the other way there is this sense of well i've done a little bit so that's better than nothing and now i'm going to stop and, and i do think there is a middle ground where there are still some sensible meaningful lines you can draw and for me and for you you know veganism is you know, represents the aspiration. But part of this idea about focusing on factory farming, factory farming only, and it's often also associated with welfare improvements in farming, you know, larger cages and uh, removing some of the most extreme forms of torture and so on. Again, I think those may well be effective and important things to focus on as part of a journey that gets us to a ultimately an abolitionist goal. But that's one of the fascinating, other fascinating things about Elwoods is because Elwoods is not a factory farm, right? It is the farm that everyone pretends they get their animal products from. It is humane and organic and grass-fed and backyard and they just have one bad day. And so because you unashamedly focus on this ethical question, I think it brings clarity to the subject in a way that broader topics about challenging the egregious horrors of factory farming or trying to improve the welfare of animals while we exploit them you know, I worry they slip away from that ethical clarity. But and it was that part of the intent. You know, why didn't you set up Elwood's factory farm and and go after the factory farming of dogs? I think that it has to do with who the audience is that I'm trying to reach. And I think that the audience is myself right before going vegan. It was it was me standing in in the grocery store looking for the humane, ethical, cage-free eggs that my heart told me I needed to buy. And it was seeing all seeing all the advertising. I'm, you know, from advertising, I see all the I see all these these words tossed around that made me feel good about not making any changes. And so I think that by reaching out to the people who are already concerned with the welfare of animals, you are that you already have a foothold. They already want better. They already think they are doing better. And I need to show them that that's not the, the that's not the truth. And when I first came up with Elwood's, I was designing it. I was working for Farm Sanctuary, which is a you know rescue rescue farm animal rescue, and my job was editing um, the animal stories. And so many of the stories were from backyard farmers who had five cows and neglected them, or this is what you know the the, the cow broke a leg and or the the chickens were you know abandoned. I mean. The stories of abuse on these small fa small family farms were so horrific, and they just broke my heart. And I know that that is your neighbor whom you're getting the eggs from. And when you see the truth of it on a small scale, also you're looking at individuals now. You're not looking at mass amounts of animals. You're like, I could make an impact if I'm not hurting this one animal on a small farm. So I think that you also have the idea that most people say that 
they don't support support factory farms, despite the fact that, you know, the numbers show that most people, it was like 99.9% of all animals raised on factory farms. Um, people don't know that that's what they're supporting. So if we can get them to even understand that you're not okay with mom and pop killing the cow in their backyard, we can, it, it immediately scales up to the factory farms. Yeah. But yeah, and it's funny, I'm I'm not really consistent with the Elwood story. Sometimes we do have sheds of thousands of terriers, but nobody seems to call me on well, it. Well, as the industry does too, right? They're all yeah, family exactly. farms. They're all run by people and all people are part of families. So they're all family farms. Yeah, yeah. It's all good. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so I'm interested in the nature of the responses you get because I've become fascinated recently with some of the more trollish characters that I come across online but i i experience them in a different way to you right because i get them because i'm talking about animal exploitation or veganism or whatever so there are carnivore diet trolls there are ex explicit anti-vegans right whose only thing they do seems to be to troll vegan posts and, and attack and it's a it's a fascinating mix because some of them based on the research done recently seem to actually be part of you know, funded social media groups by animal agriculture industries. And I don't want to overplay that in a conspiratorial sense, but there certainly are influences out there paid by the industry to, you know, do whatever they do. I think quite a few of them, partly because a weird number of them seem to be anonymous, right? I think they probably might all be just one guy with like 50 sock puppet accounts and he's sitting in his mother's basement with a script and it's just banging away. There's a woman I've interacted with, and she has the same speech patterns all the time. And she has hundreds of count of accounts. And wow. I was like, Caroline, is that you? And she's like, No, it's not me. I'm like, hi, nice to see you. Again. So there's that going on as well. But there's another there's another interesting pattern that I've been picking up, which is there seems to be a really strong link between people who are vociferously anti-vegan and particularly in the sort of carnivore space, and and certain types of intrahuman politics as well so when i look at the feeds of these people and who they're following um the predominance of you know conspiracy theories far-right memes often sort of dark anti-semitic conspiracy theories uh you know might makes right ethics you know there's often some really bleak intrahuman ethics that seem to be correlated now again there's a sort of wishful thinking here because i'd love to draw that association and i think there are genuine associations there as well but it seems like there's some interesting patterns not not between non-vegans and these ways of thinking, but between the dedicated, determined trolls and these ways of thinking, because you know they're attacking people based on their intrahuman politics as well. But I see a very different sort of set of responses and trolls than than you do. But I'd be fascinated to understand, you know, what's the sort of pattern of responses you get? And yeah, well, it's funny. I would like to. The first thing that came to mind is. The fact that, and I think this this is probably what's what's rare and kind of exciting about Elwoods is I have a lot of meat eating trolls who really genuinely like Elwoods. So I have a lot of people who are in my comments who eat meat, who think it's funny and they're there and they're just going to comment and they're going to continue adding fuel to the fire. But at the same time, I've had private conversations with these people and this this is what gives me hope in humanity that like they may talk about shooting animals or they may talk about farming them or hunting or whatever it is but they generally agree with me and they say i get what you're doing and i understand i i'm not there yet but good for you and really? i'm thinking yes and i have like 
I, I just, I just shared it right on, on Twitter, uh, just earlier this morning, it was a, a guy who said, he's like, he's like, this is my favorite. You're my favorite Instagram account. I eat meat, but I think people are doing you wrong. And I uh, know I'm going to consider I'm, you know, I, I'm not vegan, but I'd consider what, what that, what that's involving. And I think that especially young men, I think reaching them in this humor with this humor and this logic. And I think that there's also like a good friend from high school was always this kind of like logic troll, you know, he's somebody who just really liked, he just wants to be contrary and everything. And, and that depends introduced... on what the meaning of the word the that, actually the, means. Oh God, yeah, let's ah. argue about everything. But when I introduced, when he grasped what, that veganism is this contrary, extremely logical, you know, counterculture thing that he could do, like, Maybe I'm maybe I'm recruiting the worst vegans ever because he he went full vegan and now he's in there just doing all the you know he he introduced that that trolley nature to veganism and he's just it, I mean he's like listing fallacies and yeah he he's a real big fan of vegan sidekick and everything and I think that so I I get the, I think that that is kind of a sweet spot that I'm getting to is this counterculture angry wanting to be right people who and who enjoy who enjoy the darkness of it but on the other hand is also just vegans um i mean i i get vegans who hate it and i think that that has also been really hard for me is because it is the things they say are true i am i am making light of something that is that's extremely dark dogs are farmed you know am i helping am i hurting so it's this the comments is it's 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 a roller coaster for me to go through them um, and I'm grateful I don't have to spend a lot of time in there. Yeah, yeah. Stick with the auto responses. And it's a tricky, it's like you said, it's a tricky balance because in in a way you're using some of the sort of trollers kit and tone to to hit those messages hard, right? It's the dark humor, it's the willing to take it to the next level. But in in simple terms, you know, you talked earlier about needing to be gentle, but in a sense it's not, right? It's it's like punching someone in the face, but with their own ethics, right? With, and, with their own and, fist. Yeah, with their own fist, with their own values, the things they already believe, and with content that is largely repurposed from actual marketing from yes, real animal yes. product, you know, marketing people. Yeah. Often word for word. But, you know, there is there is also it's a difference too is how I interact with people on different platforms. Facebook is much more gentle. It's, it's, I'm, I'm dealing with an older crowd and I'm dealing with a lot more women. And I just feel, I, I feel like this is where I just offer the farm stories and here's what's happening. But um, like on Twitter, just today, there's a, um, a post going viral from a wildlife account where somebody in Spain had killed a wolf and that they had a very graphic photo of the wolf tied to the back of a police car and everybody is in the comments going these people are monsters and they should be you know they should be murdered and blah 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 and it takes one click to find out these people aren't vegan they're dog lovers they're all yeah. dog lovers and so I you know this is where you're like do I believe in hell am I going to hell because I go and respond I was like found the vegan like why do you even care you know they're going to use the whole animal here's the thing and I'm having all these people go you are the cruel and I'm I'm literally the dead animal is right there and I am desecrating his, his memory by just I mean but at the same time is you're getting people who are having you find them when they're having their high emotions, when they're already upset about something. And then you just inject this idea in it while they're already at that height. And may that wolf forgive me because 
this woman just wanted somebody re- responded they're like well that was a roller coaster thank you yeah so yeah and i think that's the that's the way i think about it like you're you're giving individual people and maybe even humanity as a whole a chance to just be the sort of people they really want to be deep down and and that's an opportunity and you're doing it in a distinctive and way that can sometimes feel harsh and brutal and dark but these are the things we need to do to break through sometimes i think so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well thank you um the, the the other question i wanted to ask you about how do we make a better future um in the context of our words uh, and given your background in marketing and writing is when you think about, I guess, the sort of big institutions of the world, whether that's animal agriculture, whether that's marketing agencies and PR agencies, whether it's the London Underground deciding what sort of adverts are appropriate to show and aren't, whether it's Instagram deciding on whether your account is showing cruelty to animals and therefore should be banned. What's your experience been like of bumping up against how these big institutions reflect current social norms and have you learned anything distinctive from that or is it just exactly what you expected you know their responses are inconsistent and incoherent and i think i think a lot of it depends on uh it's changed a lot depending on who i'm talking with um i think you saw that for the london underground they turned me down four or five times um i had to i had to put a i had to put a disclaimer at the bottom and even after I put the disclaimer on, they still said no. And I had to write them this passionate letter that was like a Jerry Maguire moment of being like, do you want to make a difference in the world? Like you have one chance to do something that is, you know, it's going to sure it may make some people upset, but you're allowing people to feel feelings that they already, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it was a beautiful letter. That really surprised me that they changed. I didn't expect that to work. This was just a Hail Mary. I was like, well, one last chance. Let's see if this works. And did you get a response to them from the letter or did you, did they just sort of change the approval thing to yes? They changed the approval to yes. That's it. They didn't I never talk heard about why or, yeah. Nope. No, I never heard why. And I asked, I actually asked to know if who I was could, the person behind. No, I, I asked if I could interview them and they said no. Um, and I think that I, I really love that each piece of Elwood's activism is also activism to these companies. I mean, there's a board that had to sit around and every week they're like, oh my God, the Elwood dog meat ad is back. And why are we against this? And how do we feel about this? And what's the problem? And what it's are the objections? The are? Again, yeah. And and I, I told them in the letter, I said, all the objections you have right now are the objections we should all have every day to things. Like, why are we okay with this? And and what is its impact? But then I have other ones, you know, the the reflection of Instagram took my took my account down for two months. I really thought I wasn't going to get it back because they said I was showing graphic violence. And even though my graphic violence is a piece of chicken, they don't know, they, it shows that they're like, there's so many people there's the, in the, there's so many people on, on these platforms and they're run by, you know, how, you know, they, there's not as many employees as there are people using it. And there's no one in charge. We're, we're, it's all run by robots. I just think that, um, it kind of shows that we're kind of on our own when it comes to social media, that it is a wild West and it will always be a wild West. And, you should take that with a grain of salt of then that all the content you see is not approved. Everything you see is not okay or factual or anything. It's, it's just whether it got caught by the algorithm or not. And then I have other places where I've had print shops refuse to print my stuff, even though after I had a long discussion with him and he thought I was, he thought I was lying to him that I actually did sell dog meat and that I was joking that it was a, it was animal activism. 
he he couldn't he couldn't square it. I went and picked up stuff from a print shop just the other day. The man wouldn't even talk to me because I'm in a rural place right now in a farming community, and I'm sure that upset him. But I just think that as people see people see more of this type of activism, the the ads that are always running in London are always just so exciting to see that billboard companies are willing to put up the statistics they are and they're willing to do this when they have other ads you know the, the, you know, the next week they might have an ad up for steak or a restaurant that serves animal products and they're going to have to be able to answer to that company who says why would you know i don't want to put my ad up in a place where just last week you were talking about factory farming or wool or something. And they're going to have to realize that we're not leaving. You're going to have to share the same space with us. Our messages are going to be rivaling. It's going to be every other month. It's going to be veganism, not veganism. And the more we see people willing to put up these messages, the bigger impact I think we'll have. Yeah. Thank you. And how does that, I can see your non-human centric <laughs> companion. Baby. Hello, baby. baby. <laughs> Luna's gone off to patrol somewhere. I don't know what's going on. Probably a squirrel. Um, but I guess the final big question I wanted to ask is, given the work you've done and I think the sort of unique lens you've had on how humans think about these topics and how many institutions do, how does that leave you feeling overall? Do you feel despairing and frustrated at how hard it is to persuade people? Or does the sense that you're talking to values people already have give you hope that we could actually drive some really radical change here or something in between? It's somewhere in between because I think that I'm speaking to people who have this latent uh, emotion towards animals that they just haven't acknowledged and it's it's just right below the surface. So I'm very encouraged by how how <laughs> I use the word harvest, how easy it is to harvest those vegans. Like those vegans are just they're just just right on the surface. You can just scrape them up, put them in your bucket, and we're on latent our way. Latent vegans, yeah. <laughs> yep, but at the same time is the conversations with people who even you know friends or acquaintances who who are like i really admire your work and I, and and think that you're doing great things but um it's not a choice for me and knowing that i'm like you've done enough digging to learn about this whole project and yet you don't agree with it and i think that there is just this it will always be an uphill battle uh where i don't think we're going to see the the change that we want to see but also at the same time is i don't think that that's any reason to give up because that from again not having religion that is a purpose you know we'll do good while you're here and see what change we can we can make and make it matter to that one animal or those you know 500 animals so um hopeful not hopeful half empty half full <laughs> yeah makes sense and i think the the other thing that gives me some sort of hope because i've shared that frustration of course with particularly the people i know best it sort of hits harder when they still can't see or they're not willing to act and they're still sort of trapped by social norms or whatever other psychological stuff is going on is that i think even those people as the default shifts you know as society normalizes these ideas there's you know the practical stuff happens and the social pressure releases and you know as you say you see more billboards balancing you know different messages and one clearly has 
the ethical and the epistemological upper hand. As, as society shifts, I think those people will switch pretty quickly as well. I think the reason why they're holding on is because they're still too drawn to society's central gravity. And as that central gravity shifts, I think, you know, and I hope things could move really fast. How quickly that we could get to that point, I don't know. But I think there might be tipping points or things that could happen there. Because I think, you know, one of the questions I've asked occasionally is you know, if, if animal agriculture and exploitation just didn't exist at all, who would actually suggest starting it? And I don't think there's that many people who would be like, okay, we, this is what we need to go and do, right? There would be some, but I think most humans would be like, that's not a good thing to start. We should not start that. So that gives me some hope that maybe as the default shifts, then people will um, will switch. You're even just seeing um, the shift. I mean, the difference, I think the big difference in Europe versus America is the acceptance of veganism as just an additional option. You know, all your restaurants have just one option on there. It's not, no, everybody knows a vegan. Everybody, you know, has it. They may have an opinion about it, but it's it's culturally accepted. And I think that that's a thing that makes me hopeful that, you know, America, for all of our faults, maybe, you know, maybe we're just 10 years behind and that could happen here. But, um, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. There's hope there, at least. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's been fascinating. Thank you so much for taking me through your sort of philosophical journey and uh, and your activism and what you do with Elwoods. Like I said, I think it's really distinctive and powerful. And I love the fact that it trusts people to, you know, trust their own ethics and, you know, and make the change. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add into the conversation before I let you go? No, I just um, be kind when you're reaching out to those pre-vegans because, uh, you know, we 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 want to get them on our side. So yeah, pre-vegans, I like it. Everybody is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Um, what's the best way of people following you? Buying Elwood's merch. You'd be <laughs> up to date with your accounts as they're bl- blocked and banned and re-enabled. The thing that I really want people to share is the website, not the social media, because the website is the journey. It's elwooddogmeat.com. It's just one L in Elwood. And um, but you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Oh, sorry, Facebook and Twitter at Elwood Dog Meat. We're on Instagram as Elwood's Organic Dog because we've been kicked off before. Um, and we're on TikTok and YouTube, all those things. If you want to buy merch or anything, it's elwooddogmeat.com slash shop. Um, there's I try to hide things so that the people who are on the vegan journey don't see it. But if you go to the the about button on or the contact button on our page, there's a lot of like hidden things. One of the things that I just built is a way for activists to get involved so people can download free things and they can do dog meat tastings in their neck of the woods um, and find different ways to share it. So, yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. Amazing activism. Well, it's been such a pleasure to have you as a guest on Sentientism. And I, I think, I hope, given our broad definition of evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings, I can count you as a celebrity yes. sentientist. So I'll put, I might even put you on the website. <laughs> oh, I would be honoured to be there. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's been a brilliant conversation. Please do stay in touch. And thank you for being my guest. Thank you. Take care, Molly. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?